Let's pray. God, we are so thankful. So thankful for your word. In your word, um, we find truth and, and power. We find words of life that speak into us and um, that breathe life into us. So God, may your word tonight move us toward action, toward um, following Jesus all the way to his death on the cross. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. A um, couple weeks ago, I uh, had the pleasure of attending Mary Poppins, the, the play, with, uh, at Manuka High School with my daughter, Callie. We got to do a little father-daughter date, which was, uh, was really fun. I'm uh, finding I, I really enjoy those. We went out to, to dinner. We went to Buffalo Wild Wings and hung out, and, and she had never seen it before. So we kind of prepped her a little bit and uh, had her listen to the soundtrack to get to know some of the songs, some Mary Poppins. And, um, and they did a, a fantastic job, by the way. Chris was one, one of them. Um, who was in there among some other NBCers uh, who, were, who participated in that. And they just did a fantastic job. It was cool just seeing, seeing them use the, the talent and the gifts that God has blessed them with. Uh, but uh, while I was uh, there and enjoying that, I, uh, I, I recalled the, the film that Disney put out about a year ago um, called Saving Mr. Banks. Uh, it's a pretty popular film, kind of a tearjerker for some, um, not me, uh, but for some, including our senior pastor. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Errol. Um, but it was a story of how the film was made, how Mary Poppins uh, in 1965, uh, this incredible, you know, one of Walt Disney's favorite films, a film that he really wanted to get made. It was a story of sort of the backstory of how did this all come together because uh, the, the truth is the film almost didn't get made. And it, 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 the story of that made for a pretty compelling movie. And so it, it tells about the, the author, uh, P.L. Travers. And uh, she wrote the, the story of Mary Poppins in, I think, the 30s or something. And uh, she didn't like the idea of, of Hollywood or um, you know, Disney even making this movie because she felt, felt like, and they're just going to mess it up. They're, gonna, they're not going to be able to be faithful to this story that I've created. And in a, in a big sense, she was, was right on there. She, they, she didn't think it was faithful to it. And when they uh, finally kind of talked her into possibly doing the movie, they flew her out to California to Burbank Studios, where Disney Studios was, and uh, in the film, and even at the, at the end of the film, there's actually an original recording of her sitting with the screenwriters and going through the script and her picking apart every little piece of that script because the story that they were communicating was not at all what she had intended. And, uh, of course, the whole idea of saving Mr. Banks was... This, um, this concept that Disney sort of was, was making the movie more about the kids and about this nanny who was sort of um, fixing these kids. And she said, it's not about the children. It's about their father. And that ended up being sort of, 
you know, essentially what the movie Mary Poppins was ab- about and um, this radical change of this, this father. And when she went and saw the, the final finished product, she actually still hated it because it had too many cartoon things and it wasn't, it just wasn't up to par with what she had envisioned it to be in her head. The Mary Poppins and the film and the story that they created didn't fit with what her as the author intended it to be. And it frustrated her. It frustrated her. Uh, We're going to look at a story in Mark 8. And if you have a copy of the scriptures, whether in digital or hard book format, uh, go ahead and open that to Mark chapter 8. And I'll just kind of let you in on where we're headed in Mark. Um, It's the story where Jesus uh, essentially rebukes Peter and calls him, calls him Satan. Okay? Um, pretty intense moment probably for, for Peter. Probably one of those, those moments among many that stick out in his life. Uh, but, but Jesus starts to tell about how uh, the Messiah must suffer and die. And Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes Jesus. And he says to him, essentially, Jesus, what, what are you saying? What are you talking about? Because for Peter, what Jesus was describing was not the Messiah that, 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 that Peter had in mind. So Peter says, essentially says, um, Jesus, Messiahs aren't supposed to die. You know, criminals, yes, Pharisees. Okay, I'm not, I'm not going to go that far, but Messiah's definitely not going to die. Because all the Messiahs that have died have been false Messiahs. And so Jesus, if you're, if you're telling that you're going to suffer and die, what are, we, why are we, what are we doing here? Why are we here? Well, what, kind of, what led up to this, this moment? Let's, let's look at Mark 8, 27, starting at verse 27. Uh, it says that Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say that I am? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, You are the Messiah. In Matthew's Gospel... He kind of adds a little bit more. And of course, Matthew was there. Um, he says uh, that Peter, or Jesus responds to Peter and says, Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but our Heavenly Father. Essentially, Jesus is saying, you didn't come up through this on, on your own wisdom, on your own account, but God has essentially divinely revealed this to you. The word that they use is reveal. It's, it's the word uh, apocalypse, where we get the word apocalypse from. That this, this has been revealed to you, Peter, that I am the Messiah. So Peter has this profound divine insight as to who Jesus is. And I want to, before we kind of move on in that story, I want to take us back through a little bit of the Old Testament. And what was it exactly 
that Peter was expecting? And what was it exactly that uh, the Old Testament seemed to be communicating? In the Old Testament, one of the unifying themes of the Old Testament is the promise of God. And we're going to look at three different snapshots that communicate this, this promise that God has. And it starts in the beginning. We're going to look at Genesis 3, 14 through 15. We'll look at that real, real quick. But in Genesis 1 and 2, you have creation, right? And God, at the pinnacle of creation, he creates man and woman. And he says that they are to bear his image. And the idea there is that man and woman, as sort of this, you know, the, the, the summit of, of all creation, all creation is sort of leading up to this, is that these, this special creation is supposed to bear the image of God, to represent God to the rest of the world. That is that original sort of mandate, this, that we are to be image bearers of God, that we are to be representatives of Him, reflecting to all of the world around us, to each other and to all of creation, God, and to do that faithfully. And of course, that gets off track pretty quick because we find that instead of reflecting God, we've essentially held up a mirror and decided to reflect ourselves. And we, instead of reflecting the image of God, we decided to take ourselves and make ourselves God. Make ourselves the judge over God's word. And then in, in Genesis 3, it talks about, you know, this, uh, it's the classic chapter about the fall and about the results of the fall. And in 3.14, it says that the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, because you deceived Adam and Eve, cursed are you above all livestock and in all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life and I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He, the woman's offspring, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He will crush your head. You see in the very beginning that first promise that God makes that the offspring of Eve will crush the head of Satan. It's a promise to be fulfilled. Well, you jump forward a little bit to the second one, all right? Uh, Genesis 12. Genesis 12, and it's, it's the calling of Abram. A... a uh, a Gentile, a guy who, you know, God just comes and says, hey, I'm going to, well, we'll read exactly what he says to Abram. Genesis 12, uh, starting in verse 2, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. It's a promise there. That through Abram, all the people on the earth will be blessed. And essentially, you follow uh, Abram's story, and you get to, eventually, to Israel, this, this people, this covenant community that is supposed to represent God to the rest of the world. They're supposed to be a, a, a people of God, living in community with God and with 
each other and living in a way that represents the image of God to the world. You have 12 tribes who have come together intended to be this covenant community. God gives them the law, you know, God gives them the land, and, and, and here they are. And of course, we know that Israel did not do that great of a job at representing God to the rest of the world. And finally, the third snapshot is in 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7, uh, starting in verse 11, this is uh, uh, God speaking to David through Nathan the prophet. And he says this to him. He says, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Now, of course, uh, part of this, you know, this, what that and the rest of the chapter, what, um, uh, what God is saying to David, a part of it uh, does apply to Solomon and some of the kings afterwards, um, except, except the forever part, right? I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And, and you see after David, this, the, 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 you know, one of the greatest kings in Jewish history, the greatest king in Jewish, Jewish history besides Jesus, um, there, there were tons of other kings and they all just were, they all failed. They all failed. Even the good ones couldn't be, weren't that great. And there is this, this, this promise that from the line of David, there is going to be an everlasting kingdom. And so those three snap, snapshots, you come back to Jesus and come back to this setting, right? He's with uh, his, his disciples. You have an, an offspring of, of Eve, um, and Luke traces Jesus' lineage back to that. Uh, you have, instead of 12 tribes, you have 12 disciples, and you have Jesus who at the heart of his message says, repent for the kingdom of God is near. It's coming. And then he goes on to illustrate, hey, here's what it looks like. And he tells these parables that illustrate and show what the kingdom of God is like. And so Peter is recognizing with divine help, recognizing that Jesus is the one. Jesus is the promise. All of the promises of God are being fulfilled in Jesus. And then, Mark 8, 31, he began to teach them, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Man, you just, you kind of just want to tell Peter, like, dude, just be quiet, you know, just stick your finger over his lips, like, Peter, stop, 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 don't say anything, Uh, you know, but he essentially was probably saying what the other disciples were probably thinking, like, Jesus, what are you talking about? This Messiah that you're describing is so different from what we anticipated, 
So he began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have, the mind, have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. That's pretty harsh. Jesus calls the Pharisees, you know, whitewashed tombs. He calls them blind guides. Never does he call them Satan. And here he is. Peter starts to rebuke him about Jesus' description of, of the Messiah and what Jesus is embracing as his vocation in, this, in the suffering and death on the cross. And, and, he, and Peter rebukes him for that. And Jesus calls him Satan. He calls him Satan. He says the harshest words he's ever said to anyone because Peter's opposition to his suffering and his death is opposition to the very promise of God coming to fulfillment. Because they looked at the, the, the promises and where God was, was headed and they say, yes, you know, this is, this is it. But Jesus says it's not by like the, the power of how the Gentiles are doing it. It's not by uh, bowling or lording it over or, or coming in like Rome does and kind of just conquering with the sword. I'm not going to do it that way. It's not going to be about a revolt or, or this sort of revolution um, of, of Jewish people that are going to rise up against the Roman Empire. The way that the power of God is coming and the kingdom of God is coming is through suffering and death on a cross. And at the end of the day, for Peter, Jesus didn't fit into his little box. Peter had this idea, man, this is what Jesus, this is what the Messiah looks like. And Jesus didn't fit into Peter's box. Because Jesus was all about, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, Jesus, and, and, and Peter's like, but not, not that. That can't be. That can't be God's will. And then, verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. And he said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. What was he saying? He's saying a lot of you are going to see this happen. And you're also going to see Sunday happen. And in that, you're going to see the kingdom of God make its, make its move into power, into defeating death through Christ's defeat of death. And so Jesus essentially calls, the crowd calls his disciples to repentance. I mean, when I read that phrase, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me, 
That's what I understand to be biblical repentance. Repentance is not just sort of an abstract sort of, uh, uh, and I, I just feel remorse and I feel sorry. Um, it's not that. Repentance is recognizing it's a change of mind. It's a change of direction, a change of heart. To look at Jesus and the way that he is leading things and saying, that's what I want. That's where I'm going. I'm all in on that. That's what repentance is. And so how about us? What happens when Jesus doesn't fit into our box? Because truth be told, you and I have, sometimes it's underneath, but we have an expectation of what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he, he needs to be in our lives. And we have moments where we look at our lives and we say, I'm not sure I'm not sure if my box is, is, is big enough for Jesus to fit there. But when we're confronted with that, when we're confronted with the reality of parts of our lives that are not in line with Jesus and his purposes and his mission and his kingdom, you guys, we've got to repent. We have to repent. We have to, as Jesus says, deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him to let those parts of our lives that aren't in line with his, let them die. And so tonight I want to challenge you to reflect on any area of your life that is not in line with God's purposes any area of your life that you may say has, has gotten hijacked, in a sense, for your own story. It's, it's not following God's story. It's following some other path. And in a couple minutes, um, we're going to listen to a song, a beautiful song. And during that song, what I want to challenge you to do is something bold. I want to challenge you to write a word on one of these blackboards on the perimeter here that represents something that you need to repent from, that you need to repent of, to, to say that, God, this is, this is sort of the path that, that my life is starting to take, whether it's in my, your, your marriage or your family, Maybe in how you're raising your kids. Maybe it's, maybe it's how you're relating to others. Maybe it has something to do with an emotion, um, a, an event in your life and how you're responding to it. Maybe how you interact with other people on Facebook or on whatever. There are so many parts of our lives that we need to, we need to say, God, convict me, speak to me, show me what it is that's not on track with your kingdom and your king, Jesus, and just let that way of thinking just, just die in order to, to get something greater, much greater. And so just reflect for a moment. What is it? 
I want to challenge you to just, just in this moment, just ask God, say, God, is there anything? Ask God for a word to give you. Because sometimes our minds can get so clouded and so, um, so hijacked that we can't even recognize it ourselves. We need divine insight from God to say, here's where your life is off track. Where do we find that? Well, we find that when we enter into, you know, the scriptures and in the community with people and when in prayer, and God speaks to us. And in a moment, he could say that right there. There's your word. I want to challenge you to write it, to make it, in a sense, public, not because other people are going to watch what you're, you know, writing on there or anything, but because it, it, it helps to sort of do something concrete to identify, here's one, just one area of my life. This is my time, my money. What is it that needs to get back on track? Because here's the truth. We have areas of our life that if we're not careful, can become so off track that they are violently opposed to the kingdom of God, to Jesus' prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. If we're not careful, they could become so off track. And in my mind, I don't know that it's, it's just like, well, you know, my marriage is not really, uh, it's not really against God. It's not really, you know, sort of reflecting his kingdom, but it's not, it can't be. If, Jesus said, if you're not for him, you're against him. And so think about an area of your life that you say, man, I, God, I just want, I want this area of my life to reflect your goodness and your purposes. And I want to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow you. And so I want to challenge, you don't all have to do it, but you know, if I think each of us can identify at least one area, or say, God, get me on track. Get me on track with your purposes. And so as, as they sing, I want you to reflect on that and think about that, and then we'll enter into a time of communion. Mm-hmm.